Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hello there, hello there. <laughs> I, I've been screaming so much on this show lately that I thought I'd start real, you know, in dulcet, dulcet tones and uh, work up to an outraged rant of some sort, which uh, certainly should be coming any second. Um, hey, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> where to start? Where this? Where to start? Um, I'm sorry. I'm looking through the things I have. And I, I should have decided where to start a long time ago. Let's start with one of you. Let's let you guys start. This is from Allison. Um, this is a prediction from Allison. And it's interesting because uh, at dinner with friends last night, this same subject came up with uh, a friend suggesting that he had bet another friend um, a nominal sum, sum, I believe, that if Trump were to lose the 2020 election, he would not agree to leave office. And um, <clears throat> the thought has occurred to me, too, but I think Allison, Allison's bet is, uh, prediction is, more on on the money. Um, she first of all predicts that Trump will not participate in presidential debates. Had you thought of that? He certainly doesn't care about, you know, norms or even how that might look. Um, that is a possibility. Trump will not participate in presidential debates, Allison says. Her next prediction is if he loses by a large margin, he will not attend the inauguration <laughs> of the next president. Now, I have predicted that before, and not even if he does if, if it's, I just can't see him graciously turning over power you know, in that public kind of a way. I can't see it. Um, but here's her chilling third prediction. If he loses, and it's a close election, she doesn't think he's going to go. She said, we're looking at Maduro in Venezuela tactics. I'll tell you, if he loses in a close election, it will be ugly because I have little doubt that he will say it was rigged and taint, try to taint the legitimacy of uh, the next president, um, let alone not attend uh, the inauguration. I, I don't know. We all certainly know that any of these predictions that Allison has made here are 
possible because what we used to think was impossible, well, has been proven to be possible. This president doesn't give a damn about, uh, about any precedents, norms, constitutional responsibilities, honor. <laughs> we could go on and on. But I think, uh, you know, it's a scary thing. Uh, so obviously, uh, in the upcoming election, upcoming, it would be good to win by a lot. By a lot. And if he doesn't attend the inauguration, all the better. Uh, my sense is, is he is going to want to hang on to power um, for a lot of reasons. The biggest, I think, right now is that if he loses, he becomes a private citizen. And he will be spending an extraordinary amount of time in court. And then one would think potentially in jail. So right now the White House seems to be giving him uh, cover from that, uh, from that scenario, which is, I think, why he wants to maintain his presidency more than, more than for the presidency. And I don't know how we got to this place where if a person is the president, they can somehow avoid answering to the law. And I hear so many people say, the president is not above the law. Well, you know, it appears as if he is, frankly. But squirrel those, Allison, we'll, we'll take those predictions and squirrel them away. I, I think they're very good, especially the one I had not thought of. But it seems very possible that Trump will refuse to uh, participate in presidential debates. Unless he figures that it's, you know, that his extraordinary self-confidence uh, might make him feel that he is more than up to uh, taking down whatever candidate he has uh, to face. And speaking of candidates he might have to face, I want to say something. I saw a video the other day. I didn't watch it. I just saw the you know first two seconds. I thought, what? And it was a video, uh, like a selfie video, although he must have people following him around doing these things for him. Uh, it was Beto O'Rourke getting a haircut. And he live-streamed it. And I, I saw that and I thought, what level <laughs> of self-involvement and, frankly, narcissism, what level of narcissism makes you think 
that anyone wants to take time from their lives to watch you get a haircut. I mean, I don't even understand it in terms of his own... I understand he does these things. He videos himself going here, going there. But I find it off-putting as hell. And I don't think I'm alone because Beto has fallen uh, way, 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 way down. He, you don't hear him mentioned as much. Um, granted, these are very early stages, but what I think has happened is... Uh, oops, sorry. Uh, a certain guy, another B, uh, Buttigieg, I think has sort of uh, taken over Beto's turf. Um, the same people that swooned at uh, Beto during his senatorial run in Texas against Ted Cruz, which he lost, um, are, I think, pretty much the same cohort who are now... With with uh, Pete Buttigieg. And another sort of B entered the race, de Blasio, the mayor of New York, so we're up to 23 now. This is ridiculous. And anybody getting in at this late date is, is simply mucking up the field. I mean, either, I don't know. I don't, I don't understand it at all. I don't understand it at all. And and wait a minute, just heading back to uh to the haircut video um by Beto Rourke. Imagine and, and I saw a piece. Somebody had the same reaction I did. Who who was that? <laughs> Somebody had a piece in the Washington Post, I bet it was a woman, who had the same reaction. Yes, it was. Karen uh, Tumulty, or however she pronounces it. She reacted like I did, like, what the? What was it, why is he doing that? And then the thought occurs. What if Kamala Harris or Liz Warren or... Amy Klobuchar, uh, were to post or live stream themselves getting a haircut. <laughs> what would the ensuing outrage be? And it, it underscores that truly being a woman in... Uh, in this race and frankly in this world uh, is an extreme handicap that women are even in a candidacy for the presidency of the United States are given a much, much narrower road and uh, by narrow, I mean if they happen to step outside this narrow little path that they're given, uh, they're taken down fast. While the guys stride, stride toward the prize on this big, big, big path. And the little teeny women walking this tightrope uh, 
make no mistake, that is the case. And make no mistake that Kamala Harris and Liz Warren, if they had penises, might well uh, be doing a whole hell of a lot better than they are now in terms of polling, albeit it's late. Just want to point that out. Another thing I need to point out, because it's a story I've been reading about um, here and there, little bits, and my reaction was one of disgust. And I didn't bring it up because it just didn't seem that big. But then, as often happens, um, somebody else who was disgusted wrote a piece <laughs> about it. And I saw that, so I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna say it too. I'm gonna be slightly different than this guy. I, and you may not have heard that there's a uh, a Harvard professor, a Harvard professor of law, um, who's uh, what the hell's his name? R Ronald Sullivan. And uh, I first read about this maybe a few weeks ago. Ronald Sullivan, as an, a professor of law, also takes on cases. You know, some law professors never do, my brother for one, and some law professors still, uh, you know, jump into the fray. And this professor is one such uh, man. He is married to another professor at Harvard, Stephanie Robinson, and besides doing all this other stuff, not being an attorney, being a distinguished law professor, this guy uh, also is uh, the director of the Criminal Justice Institute at Harvard Law. He is also uh, the, the founder of a conviction review program uh, in Brooklyn that has been responsible for the freeing of scores and scores of wrongly imprisoned human beings. So, and then there's one other thing he is, which is really bizarre. So he does, does all that, and on top of it, he's sort of like a, um, a he and his wife oversee a dormitory which I thought was something that, like, what are they called, resident assistants do? I mean, you get a graduate student who lives on each floor and tries to, you know, tries to ride herd uh, of, the, of the students. But at uh, Harvard, they have what are called faculty deans, and he and his wife are faculty deans at an undergraduate dorm. Okay, so this sets the stage. He's a uh, respected... Uh, pretty obviously impressive guy. But first and foremost, he's a professor of law and an attorney. And he signed on to a legal defense team, which is something he does, um, for somebody who has been charged with a number of crimes. And this is a high-profile case and when he did this, signed on, all hell broke loose. The person whose defense team he joined 
Harvey Weinstein. Or Steen, I forget. Harvey Weinstein. The disgraced and, although innocent until proven guilty, guilty in the eyes of uh, 99% of the world of being the biggest SOB jerk in the universe, uh, Harvey Weinstein, who has still not been convicted of anything, right? But when he signed on to be part of this large defense team, he's hardly his main lawyer, um, the students, you're way ahead of me now, the students, especially at the dorm at which he was a dean, uh, the dean being expected to counsel students and things like that, went berserk. And uh, they said that Sullivan's choice to do, to represent Weinstein, was nothing less than trauma inducing. And here's the thing that blew my mind. Harvard capitulated and removed him, not as a professor, but all of a sudden decided he was not a good dean. And so he was asked to leave in uh, that capacity, um, as was his wife, and Harvard didn't refer to the Weinstein thing at all. They just said that uh, his efforts to improve the climate at the dormitory were ineffective. Now, what I want to say about this is that lawyers... Are lawyer? I mean, their job is to give everybody a defense. I'm sure for some lawyers it's an interesting intellectual exercise, even if they think their client's guilty. I don't know exactly what role he was playing in uh, Weinstein's team, although according to this article I saw today, he has. Uh, very recently withdrawn from actually the team, actively participating in it. So he's not even doing it anymore. But Harvard, taking action against one of its own professors for doing what a lawyer is supposed to do. Everyone in this country is allowed counsel. There are so many loathsome figures that have, in fact, attracted incredible representation from attorneys. I give you Donald Trump for one. And nobody says boo. The students said they just didn't feel safe anymore. 
as if he were a sexual abuser, as if he were a rapist by virtue of him agreeing to be part of this defense team. Part of what people train to be an attorney, what he's training others to be. I, I am stunned at Harvard. I'm not stunned about the students' reaction. They don't seem to get much of anything, even if there are at Harvard. Um, and the article I saw today, written by another law professor at Harvard, said there was no protest when Mr. Sullivan successfully represented another very high-profile character, a convicted murderer in this case, and you'll perhaps remember the name, uh, Aaron Hernandez. He was the New England Patriot player who uh, ended up being acquitted, didn't he, of double murder. Wait a minute, but he ended up in jail. I'm mixed up now about he ended up in jail and he killed himself in jail and then I think it was later found in an autopsy that his brain was pretty well messed up by uh, you know CTE so when the same professor decides to take on another high-profile defendant who'd only murdered people maybe. No problem. But he takes on Harvey Weinstein and the swooning begins. So I, I just want to say that these universities caving constantly to uh, their students is, is really something. And I speak as somebody who, as a college student, uh, was constantly taking on the administration of the school. But that was for things like they wouldn't let us out of our dorms after 10 p.m., I mean, they were, our thing was in loco parentis, how the university was treating us like children and not allow, and acting like our parents, and that we were now adults and we should be free to come and go as we should. That was the first big thing that I took on a university about. Anyway, I. Uh, I don't know. Just don't know. So those are just a few things I think, and I hadn't had an opportunity to talk to you about them. Uh, obituary of the day. And while I guess I should go to um, I am pay, the uh, extraordinary uh, architect. Uh, who died, uh, I believe, yesterday at the age of 102. <laughs> he had a hell of a run. And uh, he put up, uh, I mean, you again, you might think 
they're not good, but uh, generally he was lauded as a great, great architect uh, internationally. I remember when I saw the um, the thing he put up outside the Louvre in uh, Paris, and I was it it just didn't seem to work for me, but everybody else thought it was grand, and so I uh, I stood down. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. Um, Kurt writes, I was surprised at the Harvard thing for the same reasons you are. Aren't there any smart and principled people left anywhere, not even in academia? One wonders if Harvard would have booted Atticus Finch <laughs> for his unpopular clientele. Did I forget to bring all the stuff I wanted to bring? I did. You mentioned Atticus Finch, and that brings me to another thing I wanted to talk about, and I don't see my clippings here. Dang it. Shit. Okay, well, anyway, anyway, anyway. So I should do pay, but there's plenty of pay things. The death that um, I want to note is the passing of uh, the grumpy cat. Because what was especially surprising about the passing of the grumpy cat and if you've never seen the grumpy cat, I don't know where you've been. It's a cat, it was, <laughs> uh, whose mouth was turned down in a perpetual <laughs> frown and whose eyes sort of also looked um, angry. So it, it was this hysteria. It didn't, it didn't have the face, the expression, that a normal cat has. And... Um, what shocked me is that it was just seven years old. And that's so young for a cat. It, 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 I'll, I'll give you information that I didn't know. It, uh, it, it was a female, and she, her real name was Tartar Sauce. <laughs> and she had a urinary tract infection, and it killed her. Seven years old. But let me tell you what this funny-looking cat. First of all, it also turns out that she's uh, her permanent scowl and that strange face of hers um, was the result of a, I guess what would be called a, uh, well, let me see, a form of dwarfism in cats. So it was you know, something genetic that got a little, you know, strange and, and whatever. And that's what gave her the frown. It wasn't that she was in a bad mood all the time. But she looked grumpy. And um, she went viral in 2012. So when she was, well, that means when she was just like a little one-year-old. So she was a kitten. And pictures of her showed up and went viral and uh, she became instantly famous and ended up everywhere. She ended up on American Idol. She ended up on television shows. She ended up on the WWE, by the way, World Wrestling. She, um, she was everywhere. 
She made her Broadway debut in, of course, what? What would it be? What would she have made her Broadway debut in? Uh Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cats. And um, she has a sculpture at Madame Tussauds. Uh, She has four million... Facebook follower? No, eight and a half million. So anyway, she's huge. She became Grumpy Cat uh, Tartar Sauce. Uh, became an extraordinary uh, industry. Now, her owner, a woman named Tabitha Bundison, who lives in Arizona, understood that her cat, this strange-looking animal, might be a source of money, which is why she posted the little little tiny kitten grumpy cat on the Internet and hoped it would take off, and oh boy, did it. And so Tabitha Bundison, riding on the back of this little teeny kitten, quit her job as a waitress at Red Lobster and formed a company called Grumpy Cat Limited. This is one smart former Red Lobster waitress, I'll tell you that, because a whole line of products came out. It is reported that in the first few years, Grumpy Cat Limited took in, this is unbelievable, more than $100 million. Oh, jeez. So, she became the spokescat for Friskies. Um, And that was like uh, four, five, six years ago. And if you go to grumpycats.com, you you will find anything you want there with her picture on it. Um, I mean, hideous sweaters, for heaven's sakes, guitar, I mean, everything, guitar uh, straps, lots of famous, so anyway, poor grumpy cat, she's dead. And the announcement, I didn't realize this. I'm late to this game, huh? Or did this just come out today? Yeah, it did. Uh, It says social media was filled with mourning and tributes to her. (laughs) Somebody's already put out a meme with Grumpy Cat in heaven. And she's sitting there in heaven and looking around and saying, so this is heaven? I hate it. Aw, poor grumpy cat. So, that's the only thing I want to say. She passed away peacefully in the arms of her human, Tabitha. Okay, that's it. The cash, I was going to say the cash cow. The cash cat has uh, gone on to meet her maker. The memes on her have been a, a riot. I mean... Somebody took out, uh, I think, Teddy Roosevelt on Mount Rushmore and put 
put her in, and that that is a very uh, funny one. She has a, I don't know, it's too cute. That poor little thing, she's just seven years old. Okay, so that's the obit of the day. And little Tony's in mourning, and he, he already has, so this is heaven. I hate it. <laughs> he already found it. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. Okay. Um, I want to, uh, and one of the things I somehow failed to, what do I do? I sit there diligently in the morning, and I go through these papers, and I highlight stuff so that I'll, I'll be able to quickly get to stuff I want to share with you. And and then I rip it out of the paper and I put it right there. And then I leave it on my dining room table. I cannot tell you the stack on my dining room table. What the hell did I do that for? One of the things that I did, and I, I was fascinated by it. I, I'm not going to remember much of the detail. But it involved... Um, the the citadel, you know that uh, what do you call it? Uh, military prep school, uh, almost two hundred years old, uh, training men to defend our country for I think it was a hundred seventy three years or something. And the first I came to know of it was uh, back when a a woman, and I'm blanking on her name, her first name was Shannon, uh, tried to get in. (laughs) And I don't know when the hell this was. This would be in the 90s, I think. Yeah, has to be the 90s. And they wouldn't let her in, of course. They begrudgingly let black men in extraordinarily late, well after Brown v. Board of Education. They let in a few black guys. But this woman who tried to get in, thank you, Shannon Faulkner, uh, was just ripped and this was in before social media. So, man, I can't imagine what would have happened in the age of social media. She was put through the ringer, ridiculed, uh, and she went to court. She sued the Citadel. And she, it went on for years, years. They fought. After all, these are fighting men. They fought and fought and fought to keep this woman out. And uh, she won. And so they had to let her in. And like those pictures of those poor black kids walking past jeering white parents as they walked into all-white schools uh, back in the... 50s. This is the kind of reception she got. And unlike those black kids, she wasn't up to it. And she couldn't. And she dropped out rather quickly. I mean, a source of constant uh, harassment. 
I mean, I cannot even begin to imagine being the only woman among hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these young men, um, young boys, actually, but the faculty as well, all male. So she didn't make it, but she broke the barrier. And after her, other women came, and other women took it, took the crap, stayed. And so now 10% of the Citadel uh, student population is female. 25%, I believe, is African American. And the story I read, which I left on my dining room table, is a f wonderful story about a, a woman who just graduated from there who attained a rank at the Citadel that no woman ever had before. She was the top. I forget the title, but she was essentially the top commander student you know they dress in full uniform they she was it's sort of bigger than student body president but there she was and coming out of that 10 percent and there were a lot of pictures of her uh doing very physical things with uh, her male uh, cohort and uh the story touched me because i was I was thinking about how change is always so hard because there are always huge, huge forces backed by usually a majority of the people. And the true David and Goliath fights and these brave black students, these brave women who went into all-male institutions knowing there would not be a friend there for them, knowing they would not only have to excel academically and in the case of the Citadel physically and in every way. I mean, these extraordinary people, what they do by taking on that being first, being even second and third, being the first to breach the wall, eventually, and this is what I saw in this article, they change people's hearts. And so she rises, what, maybe 20-some years after Shannon, whatever her name is again, <laughs> Shannon Faulkner, um, breached the wall but then succumbed. These other women came behind her and hung on longer and then longer and then longer and put in a... And now, 
the guys, and the same for the black men that were allowed in. That had to be rough. That had to be rough. They hung in there. And so now there was a picture of the, you know, graduates, and it was still overwhelmingly white men I'm looking at. But I pe I was looking at this pretty big picture, and yeah, I saw black faces and not a lot of women, but they're there, and you don't hear, you know, all the people who said it would destroy the citadel, it would this and that. They're wrong. You were wrong. You're always wrong. And they don't go away. There's, there, it's, it's the fight we have now with people who simply won't admit that there are things in the way things are that aren't right. And that need fixing. And that to push toward an openness, an openness to allowing any human being, regardless of skin color, gender, religion, anything, to have the same opportunities. And we're still getting huge pushback. And it's the same people. And I'll tell you something. They overwhelmingly vote Republican. There's plenty of what are called Democrats who join them culturally. Those are the Reagan Democrats. Those are the Democrats around Western PA. I remember when I first moved here 30 plus years ago being stunned as I sort of got to know certain politicians and what they stood for and realizing they're Democrats? <laughs> How are they Democrats? Where I'd come from, they would have been Conservative Republicans, frankly. I'm just saying, it takes time. It takes the courage of remarkable, ordinary people who break these barriers, allowing so many others who may never say thank you <laughs> who may never even realize what someone ahead of them has done for them to have a chance. Anyway, so after I see that and my heart is warmed, there was a picture of her, the woman, her last name was Zorn, who reached the highest levels uh, at the Citadel, and she was engaging in some SEAL-like you know, namely, you know, like heavy-duty military uh, training thing in water with other students. And they were clearly having to stay afloat. That's a still picture, but I could tell. They're having to stay afloat in water while interlocking arms. They're all, they're all there in the water. 
uh, together with their heads up, you know, trying to stay up, and with, but as a team. And in the center of the picture, there she was, this white girl. On either side of her, she was linked with black boys. Their arms were linked, and they were all together. And I looked at that picture, and I thought, in my lifetime, there would be a majority of Americans who would have been outraged, outraged by that picture of this white woman, girl, I think they were all like, they're all like 20 maybe, girl, half naked, in water, with these black guys and not only that their arms are all linked they're touching their naked skin is touching in this intimate half naked place do you know people would have freaked there are still people who look, would look at that picture today and not like it but they are fewer and farther between. And what I want to say is, my God, you can't lose sight of the progress we have made, but here's what we do forget. You have to keep the fight up every second because we thought we'd made this progress in regard to a woman being able to control her own body to be, of course, the person who would decide what would happen to her body. And now we are heading back, back, back. It would be no different if all of a sudden the Citadel closed its doors to black men and women and white women it's the same incredible push back. People who call themselves progressives, meaning they're always trying to push things forward, tend to relax after they've achieved a victory. The guys on the other side who are always pushing back Never admit defeat. In fact, I will give you most of the entire southern states of the United States who still, as far as I can tell, do not acknowledge they lost a traitorous war. They won't even acknowledge what it was about. They never stop fighting. Our side does. So, looking at these pictures, seeing this story about this woman, who, by the way, is now serving in the military, um, I came upon this story 
in today's Washington Post. And it says, here's the headline. The headline's all you need. Remember yesterday when I was talking about how Trump is now responsible for 25% of all of the federal judges on the circuit system? Twenty-five percent. And I've mentioned that a lot of these people, first of all, they're appointing them young as hell because once you get on, you cannot be gotten off unless you're impeached. And they're young and they're political and they're conservative as all hell. And according to the uh, American Bar Association, which has tons of conservatives on it, they are not qualified. There's nothing in their histories, their experience, that qualifies them to sit at that high level of our federal judiciary for life. Here's the headline I read today. Trump judicial nominees decline to endorse Brown v. Board of Education under Senate questioning. Brown v. Board of Education. That was the, I mean, I needn't tell you, the landmark decision that ended legalized school segregation. I'm trying to remember the year. It was 65 years ago. It was 65 years ago. It is widely seen as one of the Supreme Court's greatest moments. And when these not, not judicial nominees that Trump keeps sending up there and McConnell and the Senate keep just going through because the Democrats cannot stop it. All the Democrats can do is while there is a hearing, you know, each nominee has to show up for a hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee, and they do have to be questioned by some Democratic senators on the committee who have no power. And in questioning, they are asked things like, do you? <laughs> well, here, I'll give you... One of the more recent unqualified creeps that now has a lifetime tenure on, on the court. Um, a woman, one of the few, because most of these are all white men. Um, why can't I find her name? I think it's Wendy something or other. Anyway, Wendy Vitter. Jeez. Oh no, is she related to the Senator Vitter? Oh God, that would make sense. Remember Senator Vitter? 
this rocked rib family values right-wing Republican who got caught with his pants down at a prostitute's place. And then the good people of Louisiana, right, sent him right back. They said, oh, yeah, it's okay. He still supports my values. I bet there's a... Okay, so anyway, one of these judges who was at a judicial hearing, Wendy Vitter, by the way, she was confirmed. Um, She was confirmed yesterday. So she's now a federal judge for life. She was asked... And by the way, it says here she was a federal district judge in, she's confirmed as a federal district judge in Louisiana. So I don't know, but that suggests that, yes, she is. Anyway, not a single Democratic senator voted for her, but doesn't matter. And during her hearing, she was asked, was Brown, do you believe that Brown v. Board of Education was properly decided? In other words, do you agree with Brown v. Board of Education? And here was her answer. If I start commenting on I agree with this case or I don't agree with that case, I think we get into a slippery slope, Senator. She refused. She refused to say she thought Brown v. Board of Education was settled law and that she agreed with it. Senator Blumenthal, who had asked the question, said, I was stunned by her answer. He said, Brown v. Uh, Board is woven into the fabric of our nation. How could anyone suggest that they couldn't say, yes, of course, of course. She's not the only one to have done this. She's not the only one. And here is somebody, president of a conservative think tank called the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Brown v. Board is widely regarded as a landmark decision implementing the Equal Protection Guarantee. I think the left is playing games with it precisely because it does have this stature. What What does that mean? Do you agree with Brown v. Board? Well, yes, of course, Senator. The refusal of these Trump nominees to answer that and her comment that it was a slippery slope suggests that If the next question is, do you agree with Roe v. Wade, they can then say, "Uh, Senator, I just, I'm not, I can't, blah, blah, blah. 
because we now know Roe v. Wade, although thought to be settled law. Um, is not. Um, so, and and get this, the, the this article goes on to say, the current Supreme Court has already whittled away at Brown v. Board. In considering cases from Seattle and Louisville, the court has voted five to four to invalidate programs that used race as a factor in assigning students to schools for the purpose of desegregation. Chief Justice Roberts wrote, classifying children by race for desegregation is constitutionally no different from classifying them by race for, for segregation. Here's his exact words. Before Brown, school children were told where they could and could not go to school based on the color of their skin. The school districts in these cases have not carried the heavy burden of demonstrating that we should allow this once again. Even for very different reasons. Before Brown, children were told where they could go because of the color of their skin so that black students couldn't go to where white students went. And now, Roberts is saying that to take black students and say these whites, it's the same thing. The white schools are trying to desegregate schools. And then this is a, says it was his most memorable line in his tenure as Chief Justice. He said, the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discrimination on the basis of race. Which is to say, no affirmative action, no anything that says, you know, look at this lily white workplace, look at this lily white school, uh, you guys got to start letting in some black people. He's saying, oh, no, 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 no. See, that's what we used to do. We used to let people go to or be deprived of certain things because of the color of their skin. And the way we stop that is by being colorblind. Still racist, but colorblind. Obviously, the dissenters on the court said Roberts was standing the intent of Brown v. Board on its head. And that the work of desegregation in this country was not, oh, 
We did that. That's finished. We did it. It's finished. Chief Justice John Paul Stevens, who I've commented about this week, said in dissent, the Chief Justice rewrites the history of one of this court's most important decision decisions. And I have to tell you, this is, we're going even. This is even worse than when Brett Kavanaugh had his hearing. Because when Kavanaugh sat at his confirmation hearing, he was asked about, Ro, uh, about Brown v. Board of Education, and he said the decision was inspirational and the single greatest moment in Supreme Court history. So, since Kavanaugh, when was that? Yesterday? A few months ago. One loses time, track of time. So, all of a sudden now, all of these other judicial candidates are refusing to even go as far as Kavanaugh, now a justice of the Supreme Court. Well, I can see I've done it again. I've talked my way past our closing time. And uh, anyway, that's the uh, reality, uh, albeit depressing, that I have to uh, offer you today. Hope you guys have a great weekend, and uh, I'll see you again on Monday. Bye-bye. Lynn Cullen Live. Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.